Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right now, at CBUS, we're building a new future for all of us. By building new projects in property, investing in infrastructure, and putting millions into Australian businesses, we're not only helping to create around 100,000 jobs, we're strengthening the economy. And with a history of strong, long-term performance, we're building a better, more secure future for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with me, Adam Collins, and down the Zoom line, as always, Jeffrey Lemon. We're back for another week. Jeff, uh, you've just returned from another round of women's big bash games. We're going to talk about that in some depth later on, but before we go anywhere on today's show, and lots to get through, we can't pass go before talking about one of our most discussed cricketers <laughs> through the stretch of the show, Jodie Hicks. She's, a lot of people are paying attention to her right now, Jeff. She's had quite the few days. Oh, she's had quite the 24 hours. Look, I for context, it's just gone midnight. I, I've just got back from calling two WBBL games back-to-back, so I'm very tired, but bear with me. Today was the first day that I'd actually got to watch Jodie Hicks walk to the middle live at a ground. I've, I've watched her do it on a stream before, but this is the player, if, if you're not up to date with this, this is the player who has been on the Sydney Sixers list for six seasons thus far, played her 29th game today, until about 24 hours ago, had batted three times in those 20, 29 games and had never bowled a delivery. She's an all-rounder, uh, that's what the Sixers say. Since then, since that time about a day ago, She's gone from three innings to five innings, having added zero runs in the process and having faced one ball. (laughs) (laughs) On two occasions, I've woken up to to messages from you. The first one saying, you won't believe it, Golden Duck. And then this morning, I woke up to Diamond Duck. You didn't even say, no, just Diamond Duck. I'm like, this must be Hicksie we're talking about here. So talk us through the run out. How did it happen that she was running without facing a ball? Oh, Jody, and look, I feel, I feel we all feel for Jody. We've all been wanting Jody to get a hit. She got demoted from number eight last season, having never got to bat, to number ten this season, where she never got to bat. She's gone through so far. Her, her contributions this season were: did not bat, 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 and did not bat. And then we got to what is it? Her, her ninth game of the season yesterday when she came out to the middle when the Sixers had absolutely botched it against the Adelaide Strikers. They needed 35 off 19 balls when she came out with only the lower order to come. So she did the right thing, tried to launch Megan shoot over cover, first ball, got caught by Stefani Taylor with a, a good leaping catch and was out for a golden duck. And you were like, oh, God, you know, this is like... It's it's classic Jody Hicks luck. Uh, this is how it happens. Then came... <laughs> Came out today. When they're going really badly, the Sixers, they're a good team that's falling apart. 
they were batting first this time today. They had 13 balls left in the innings. They had 106 on the board, nowhere near enough. The wickets were falling away. Ash Gardner's not there. She's concussed. Everything's going to shit. And, and, and poor old Jodie has to walk out with 13 balls to come. She's at the non-striker's end. Angela Reeks, who's another player who almost never gets to bat, but sometimes gets to bat a bit more than, than Jodie does, drives it out to deep cover. She's just doing the right thing. She's like, hustle too. You hustle too at that stage of the innings. Ange Reeks just goes, ah, oh, I think I might stop at the non-striker's end, <laughs> hang around a bit, think about it, and then go. So Jodie's like, oh, shit, do I stop? So she stops. And then they both start going again because you've, you've got to honour the call. And she comes through and gets run out by a couple of metres without having faced. And I was, oh, I was in the commentary box at the time just watching this unfold and I was like, this is, it is, it is so perfectly attuned to the rest of it. So the, the total now is five innings, four ducks, two first ballers, one diamond, one second baller. And the innings where she made five and then got run out at the non-striker's end when a straight drive hit the bowler and bounced onto the stumps. In 29 games across five seasons. I mean, it's absolutely perfect. And I should add... This six is, this, Six, sorry. This is all said with all said with love. I mean, we did the entire Statman segment around <sighs> Jody before the season started. And we would love nothing more. Don't listen to this and think that we aren't on her team. We, are, we could not be more on the Jody Hicks team. This, in some respects, though is going to make a better movie script. When she comes in in the final, the Sixers are just about shot at the moment, but we saw in WBBL uh, Season 1, they won, I think, eight games on the bounce to make it into the final before losing the final, as it happened at the MCG. They should have won it, but Elise Perry uh, wasn't able to execute a run out on the final ball, if I if I recall correctly. But the point is is that if Jody is there on, on grand final day and salutes and, and, he's, and he hits the winning runs or whatever it is, this will make for one of the all-time great features, if not feature films. So oh, we're, we're still in there fighting. Please. It's, it's just that you, there comes a point, like when someone has a bit of bad luck, you know, like they, they drop a, a cup on their foot or something, that's funny, right? It's funny when other people have a small amount of bad luck. When someone has a larger amount of bad luck, that's not funny, you know, or they fell down some stairs or whatever, that's not funny. <laughs> but when someone has, when it goes beyond that and they have an incredible run of bad luck, it becomes funny again. It, it's a Mobius strip. <laughs> and it's much like the, there's a story of the, the park ranger from Oregon or somewhere who got hit by lightning seven times in his life. And, and you're like, well, that's kind of funny. <laughs> by the time you've been hit, like, the fifth time, it's starting to get funny. <laughs> and so... <laughs> By the time, by the time a career that's involved three golden ducks then includes a diamond, just to top things off, it just becomes funny again. And I'm sorry, like Jody, I wish you the best. I wish you a fifty ball hundred in the final. It would help if your team ever let you bat when they weren't just completely dead and sunk in a game. But uh, that was it. That was that was that was Jody's twenty four hours. Jeff, on the basis that I don't think a cricketer has ever needed to hear that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance, ever more than uh, Jody Hicks. I think it would only be right, in a show of solidarity with Hicksie, that she becomes this week's Seabus Super Performer of the Week. She keeps showing up. She keeps putting in the effort. And uh, you've got to do that in order to eventually get the returns. Important to note that CBUS manages over $50 billion of members' money and their average return over the last 35 years is 9.23%. So the important thing there is 35 years. It can take that long. 
It's not necessarily all <laughs> going to happen in the first five or six years. You've got to put in the 35 years in order to get there. Uh, cbussuper.com.au is where you find them and their product disclosure statement, which will let you know more about what they do. We're going to talk about the Women's Big Bash League at the tail end of the show in a, in a bit more depth. Before we uh, get into the the, uh, the bread and milk of our uh, discussion today, um, <laughs> bread and milk? Bread and milk? Water and sure, meat? Sure, yeah. Why not? I don't know why I put I mean, bread and milk together at last time. I don't know. Um, I, I wanted <laughs> Honey and wine. Honey and wine of the show today. I just wanted to note that, uh, again, we've received a, a great response to our story time eps on the weekend, which we love making. But what we've been putting on, on the back of those shows in the last few weeks is the interviews from Calling the Shots earlier in the year. So we had Jared Kimbers and then Jonathan Agnew, um, Harsha Bogley coming up this week. So they're kind of extended, but far more focused discussions than we normally have on the final where they're just about the art of commentary so people have been getting a lot out of those so what I'll do is pop in the show notes a link to the entire series of Calling the Shots it's deep in our feed now so you you may have missed it but if you want to go back and, and listen to how these programs got put together we'd love that so Harsha Bogle coming up this weekend on Storytime and Jeff between now and this weekend I suspect there are going to be a number of twists and turns when it comes to India's tour of Australia not due to the tourists they are safe in camp uh, in Sydney Sydney honouring their 14-day uh, quarantine period at the moment, looking forward to the limited overs game starting towards the end of November. This is due to the uh, events in Adelaide, which have only so far seen 18 people diagnosed with coronavirus, but due to the circumstances around it, uh, a, a number of state borders have shut. We saw the well-documented uh, case of Ali Mitchell, who was flying into Adelaide from the UK to obviously work on the series for Channel 7. She got diverted to Sydney, and I think people have started realising that the first Test match could be under some threat, although it must be said Cricket Australia put out a strong statement tonight refuting that, saying that they were going to play the Test match in Adelaide. But, Jeff, the, the nuts and bolts are that players who need to be somewhere in Australia right now, so talking about the Australian team or other domestic players, have been quickly making plans to do that on the basis that they're worried they might get, they might get stranded. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. So the um, the men's big bash uh, teams have been extracting anybody from Adelaide or who's in Adelaide at the moment um, to safeguard against that. You know, in case borders get shut by other states against South Australia, some already have WA <laughs> who've shut themselves off from the world entirely and don't want anyone to come in ever again. Yeah, yeah. And look, I, I know we've got some listeners over there in Perth, and so I, I just like to say. Um, and to, to anyone in WA listening, I'm glad that we can communicate with you this way because they can't, they can't, they haven't cut off the internet yet. They haven't stopped podcasts <laughs> from getting in, but there may come a day when you have to smuggle podcasts over the border um, in <laughs> hidden within the folds of your trench coat sewn into the lining. So you know, stay in contact with us uh, on the messages about that. But yeah, that, that all of that's going on. I, I think CA saying it will go ahead is a bit. I mean, how can they know that? It's a month away. It's it's the 18th today when we're recording this. The, the test doesn't start till the 17th. So things could be fine by then or they could be a whole lot worse. We just don't know. Yeah, I suppose what, what they've said is that they built in a degree of agility with the schedule. So if they need a backup plan, it was much the same with Melbourne really, wasn't it? If Melbourne continued to spiral or they didn't recover, more to the point, they would have found a way of playing that second test match in Adelaide. I suppose in the event that things did get worse in Adelaide and, and there were, was a decision made, the fact that the Indian team are already going to be based in New South Wales and in the ACT means that they could 
I suppose, play that first test match in Canberra or at the Sydney Cricket Ground. So it's not as though the, yeah. the test won't happen. It's more just that I suppose after a couple of very good weeks, uh, as far as coronavirus news is concerned, it's just a reminder that we're not home free yet as far as the 2020-2021 uh, domestic season is concerned. We, there could still be volatility built into it. Well, things change fast and, and this bug is a tenacious fucker yeah. and it, it has an incredible ability to jump ship from one person to another in uh, in circumstances where you don't expect that to happen. So, you know, this will be the reality of what we're dealing with for the next little while. I, I did like the reports about airlifting in players, <laughs> yes. which just had me imagine, could you get players to skydive to the crease like when it's their <laughs> turn to bat? They've got a parachute in, um, you know, and then land <laughs> on a good length on the offside, <laughs> ditch the shoot, and then and then face up. You know, give them a couple of minutes to get their breath and face up for the next ball. I'm sure Jasper Boomerab would land just on an annoying length, just about a, uh, <laughs> six inches outside the off stump, angling in towards the uh, the gap between bat and pad of Joe Burns, which was a discussion point during the week as well. Jeff, the Australian 17 man Test squad was named, and I have to say it was the least controversial squad that I can remember in a really long time which speaks to the rude health that Australian cricket sort of find themselves in after that month of Shield cricket which we of course had that conversation with Brad Sunderason last week about this but Will Pukowski in the 17, Cam Green in the 17, uh, Sean Abbott as the spare bowler earned that opportunity in the 17 as well, made 100 after we talked last week, he's a maiden uh, century at first class level but Jeff the more interesting part of it was Justin Langer discussing Joe Burns and Will Pukowski essentially saying that as impressive as Pukowski is that Burns and Warner have their thing going at the top of the order. And, I mean, I don't think you can read it any other way that Burns will play the first Test match and that Pekoski, if he is to play, will have to come in in the middle order, which doesn't look particularly good for Matthew Wade suddenly. When I was in the 17, I drank a very good good beer. beer. (laughs) 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 Yeah, look, this one, I don't know about this. I sort of... (laughs) I feel like what's the point of having Will Pukowski in your squad if you're not going to put him in your team? And if he's done what he's done to force his way into the squad by being an opener, then kind of what's the point of not using him as an opener? And obviously I say this as a long-term Joe Burns backer, but you know that that's always been based on the reality of the argument that uh, he didn't get a decent enough shot at it, whereas I think last summer he did get a decent shot at it and didn't really do a great deal with it. So I, it, it, it seems like straddling two different positions. It's like, well, we have to have Bukowski in the squad because he's made runs, but we're also not going to put him in the team. Or like you said, does that mean he comes in at six? Yeah, it feels like the latter, really. Even Pekowski's comments in the last couple of days, he spoke to Jared Waitley. I think he's gearing up to play. I didn't really like the, the bit from Langer about uh, it, it sh- he was citing the glory days as he tends to do, how it was harder to get out of the Australian team than get into the Australian team. And look, that might have been a perfectly sound policy when you had the most formidable lineup in the history of Test cricket assembled in the top six. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a, a that, that was one thing with, with players outside of the 11 who had 20, 30, 40 first-class tons to their name. This isn't quite that. They're, I mean, sure, they're the number one ranked Test team in the world at the moment, but I don't think anyone for a moment believes they're the complete product or they're they're still on the upward curve they're they're not at their their summit or even close to it so yeah I'm not sure the old adage about harder to get out than get in quite works but yeah I mean if Matthew Wade was omitted for Wolpikowski that's one way in but what if they want to use Cameron Green hypothetically if they want to use Mm. Cameron Green at Melbourne or Sydney 
tracks that have been shit out. Not as bad last year, I, I should note, but over the last five years or so, very slow tracks where they may want to have a fifth bowling option, which might bring Green into the equation. Well, does that mean Pekofsky plays in Adelaide and gets omitted after one test? That's not a healthy way to deal uh, with a newcomer to the side either. We saw Travis Head omitted at the Oval last year in, in I suppose, similar circumstances where Mitchell Marsh got to go and it kind of looked a bit bung because Head is a player they're building around uh, for the longer term. So none of this is perfect, but I would have thought the most logical thing would be to have Pekofsky open. I mean, the, the other side of this is that uh, Pekofsky's played two games in first-class cricket as an opening bat. I suppose the retort to that would be every time Pekofsky has a new challenge put in front of him, he rises to it, whether it's first-class cricket the first time around, whether it's coming back from the head injuries, coming back from the mental health troubles he had, uh, leaving himself out of cricket for a while there a couple of times. Each time he's returned, he's returned and taken the next step. So why would you assume that he wouldn't continue doing that now that he's shown that he can do it at first-class level as an opener and bat for hours and hours on end. I think your comment about putting a, a lot of value on Australia being the best test team in the world is a bit like Snow White bragging about being the tallest one in the house. Uh, yeah. You know, there's not a lot of competition yeah. around at, at, at the moment. And, you know, this team isn't anywhere near those kind of teams that Langer likes to talk about. And as you say, when it's, it's when you've got... When you've got a, a really hard and proven test player, you know, you've got Mark War doesn't make runs for a few test matches and people want him to be dropped. And But he's already done that for a shitload of test matches before that. You know, that's not really the, the case with Burns and he, he doesn't have that sort of compelling case to make. And so I would have thought it's just one of those hard luck calls and, and you put Pukowski in the spot, but it sounds like that's not the way they're going to go. And I, I guess I... <laughs> Having spent most of last year saying put Joe Burns in the test team, uh, I probably can't be too annoyed if they leave Joe Burns in the test team. Yeah, look, we, we touched on that as well last week, Jeff. If Burns was overtaken, that's okay. I think the language around players being omitted sometimes gets supercharged. And if it mm. turns out that Joe Burns is in the 17 and he's 12th now and he becomes a spare bat again because a generational talent has forced his way into the team, okay, like that's all right. Like, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. I think we overplay this. It, it doesn't seem mm. to be as big of a deal in other sports or in other formats of the game. It's something about the Test 11. We get very worked up when a player is... I mean, it, it, and, and, and I'd go as far to say it's an acutely Australian problem. India rotate their bowling lineup, Test match on Test match. What was that stat? Virat Kohli never played in the same 11 twice as captain. He always changed it up. In England, mm. a player like Sam Curran is in and out constantly. It doesn't seem to affect his disposition. But we really do turn this into a yeah. make or break. You are sacked. You are fired as the Australian... You're dropped. You're chopped, yeah. you're axed, you're, and, and it's the same way that people talk about Travis Head at the Oval last year. Oh, Travis Head got dropped. Well, he didn't. Like they needed an all-rounder, and they had to make space for him. Yeah. It wasn't like your shit, you're out of the team. It was you have to make way so we can have this tactical flexibility, and then you're back in again. And in other sports, players will come and go as they need to come and go. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, I suppose we'll learn more about that after the Australia A games, Jeff. So there's, there's two Australia A games: one against India A, and one against the, the full strength. Indian team and a number of those Australian 17 are in the Aussie A squad which again that makes sense so Sean Abbott Joe Burns Cameron
Cameron Green, Travis Head, Michael Nisa, Tim Payne, James Patterson, Will Pukowski and Mitchell Swepson are all members of the 17 who also get a chance for Australia A. So there might be a an old-fashioned mm. bat-off, as we seem to say every season hey. now, um, with Burns and Pukowski. <laughs> good old-fashioned test good old, cricket. Good old-fashioned. So, look, those games are coming up soon too, so we'll keep an eye on that. But, yeah, I think the positive news out of all of this is that there didn't need to be a bolter uh, because there was all the Sheffield Shield cricket. I mean, what a joy. Uh, what a joy mm. that we've got this great body of work that these players have been able to put together over a month in Adelaide. Granted, a little bit less for the Victorians who missed two games, but it's a really strong position for Australia. Only to needed to. Only needed to, that's right. <laughs> Only needed but to. Even, don't need, don't need your extra. <laughs> but they've, they've had this chance, and, and, I, and I think that, again, it should be something they look to in the future. We, we got asked Brad about this last week, but it's worked really nicely. So I hope that they look at doing something like this before the Ashes next year as well. And maybe, you know, maybe those two tour games are it. Maybe that's where, you know, if, if, if one or other of those two players we're talking about makes big scores in those games, maybe that's enough to move the next. Mm. And Cameron Green, I should add, he's one of the players who's being quickly ferried over to Sydney uh, in order to make sure that he beats the virus, if you like, uh, to be ready to play in the one-day teams. It's entirely possible that Cameron Green will have an international cap before the first test, but in 50 or 20 over cricket, so a bit of a watch this space there. Speaking of 20 over cricket, Jeff, we have some rule changes in the Big Bash uh, coming up this year. (laughs) Yes, and, and they prompted... A big response yesterday, which was to be expected given they are known as the surge, they are known as the boost and the X factor. So uh, in the case of the surge, it means that there's two... Don't forget it's the power surge, power surge and, the bash, and the bash boost. Yes. Very important yes. to get that terminology right. So, so the power surge uh, means the batting side chooses when to take control of the addition of the power surge according to their press release yesterday. So the power player becomes four overs and you can basically tack two on uh, at the time of the batting teams want the bash boost is that this is the one that uh, I, I I don't like an awful lot you get three points for the win and one point for the boost in terms of the the ladder and that's awarded halfway through the second inning so the batting side gets an extra point if they're above the equivalent 10 over score for the team that batted first so in other words uh, an MS Dhoni style chase wouldn't work in in that mm. scenario and the X factor is just a glorified super sub. It means that um, you can replace any player in the eleven who's yet to have played in the game. So they couldn't have bowled more than one over, and they couldn't have batted. So we've obviously had super subs in in limited overs cricket in the past, but that's been brought back in this X factor form. So Jeff, my first instinct was that well, first of all, we're constitutionally not permitted to say negative things about the Big Bash because. Um, administrators and former administrators get very, very upset on Twitter when you say negative things about That's the BDR. True. So I should yeah. be careful how I come at this. But um, I'm also mindful that I'm perhaps not the best judge of what works and what doesn't mm. in new things in 2020 and short form cricket. I mean, my instinct <laughs> is to go, this is fucking bullshit, but like, maybe it's not. Like, I'm willing to sort of take the advice of someone like Trent Woodhill, who's been involved in putting these things together. I, I trust someone's judgment like Trent. When he spoke to the final word, we had him on, what, two months ago, three months ago, something like that. And I asked him about the big bash. He said that any changes they would make would be about arresting this sense of a, a meandering competition, how it was overly tactical and he wanted to sort of liberate the comp. Well, it feels as though that that's what they're trying to do here. And and the marketing jargon around it is obviously subject to derision along the way. And it's it's always going to be. The, the thing that I find funny with all of this is you know a lot of people are annoyed about it and saying that these are terrible changes and and so on 
they're all just different names for the same stuff. Like yeah. they're bonus points for their first innings points, basically. <laughs> uh, you know, bonus points for how fast you chase the score down, substitutes, and moving the power play around, which they did in one day cricket for years, and it never really worked. And the reason these things didn't really work was the optional power play Watsy was only ever used by teams right at the end of their innings. And so then they brought in that rule that you couldn't use it. You had to use it by the 35th over mark. And then it tended to have the effect that players who were well set thought they had to hit out and then tended to get out and wickets would fall and you'd have fewer runs scored Mm. in that than you had previously in in that period of time. And I think the same thing's going to happen with with the big bash in that who's going to put fielding restrictions on at any time except for the last two overs? Why would you... As a batting side, why would you do it anywhere else? You'd, you'd force the field to come in at the time when you're most likely to be hitting out. Uh, and then with bonus points, it, it's a similar sort of thing in that it's likely to disrupt the way that a team goes about a chase if they feel they have to try to get to this certain point by the midway point of the innings, which might not fit with how you want to approach certain bowlers and you know which ones you want to be more defensive mm, against mm. and which ones you want to attack. You might not want to score more than half of the runs in the first 10 overs because you might have a plan to do that towards the back end. So then that influences the way that those teams will play the game. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And, and Jared Kimber wrote really nicely about this yesterday in his Substack. So have a look at, um, just Google Jared Kimber and Substack and you'll see a, a newsletter edition from him on that where, especially around the idea of the additional part of the power play, his take is that we already have a bit of a problem between the end of the power play and over 12 with conservatism. And we know historically, when you had this optional power play, that it would bring upon a bunch of wickets and it would ruin the flow of an innings. And that's something we need to be mindful of. But again, I suppose short form cricket's all about adaptation and I'm sure the teams will get the chance to do that. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't help when they're using terms like X factor and especially after AFL X a couple of years ago. It does look ridiculous and it does feel unnecessary necessary and it does kind of undermine the the advantages that we might see and and i suppose i mean look there could be unintended consequences on the upside or the downside we won't know until we see it in practice but it doesn't help when the marketing jargon sounds ridiculous the stuff is it's all about appealing to what they think kids are going to like basically and and maybe they're right you know i'm not a kid i don't know what a kid's like wouldn't have a clue don't remember matchbox cars like (laughs) whatever that's why the teams have stupid names that's why they have nice bright tacky vomity colors because they're designed to appeal to children and so if this is something that they can put up on the screen at a game and say no it's time for the power surge and everyone's like what's that power surge power play can't remember look Fine. It, it doesn't really matter what they call it. That's the main reason people will put shit on it. Um, it's more about whether it'll actually work in the game. And, and the substitute thing could be interesting because it's, it's different to the super sub in that you had to nominate that player before the toss, whereas this one is one that you can nominate during a game. Well, this comes back to the old thing, and again, I'm, I'm echoing Kimber here, but why is it still 11 players in a T20 game? I mean... You can go back as far as, I don't know, 1997, where you could pick 12 players, 11 bat, 11 bowl. I don't see any reason why we couldn't have that in the big bash and you avoid a situation where where part-timers are as important as they are as the fifth bowler or coming in at number six or number seven, where if you just permit an extra player to be on the team sheet from the get-go, you kind of get around that or even make it 13 or 14. But I suppose that, that hasn't that hasn't been breached yet. We haven't had a go at breaching the 11 team sheet as yet, but that might be something that, that comes into the future. But yeah, I like the idea of being able to potentially, if you lose early wickets, bolster your team with an extra batsman. It means you'll be weaker later on. 
it might work. Who, who's to know? I suppose the, the other part of this, Jeff, stepping back from it, is that does the BBL have an identity problem? I mean, are we at a point where over the last couple of years, across the board, there's been a sense that it's been drifting, a sense that the competition is too long as far as the, the number of days it takes to complete the, the program of games, a sense that they didn't need to go that extra step in the previous broadcast deal, or the current broadcast deal, but at the end of the previous deal. And we're now in this situation where it hasn't quite got the same cut through that, that it once had. And for mine, the, the biggest challenge there is that you don't put on, on, it used to be at Channel 10, half past seven, put it on every night and it was the red team playing the purple team, playing the green team, play, no one cared. It was in the rhythm of the mm. summer. You popped it on free-to-wear television in the middle of summer and you really weren't paying a dramatic amount of attention to who was playing necessarily. It was about knowing it was going to be there. And since a lot of it's moved over to pay television and the timings have changed due to how many games they're trying to crunch in I think that's a bigger challenge and a bigger hurdle to clear in the next four years than what we might call the the novelty uh, bits that have been thrown in this week. The fact that all of that changed, it it meant the rhythm of it changed and I do remember how jarring it was when that shift happened where it was like, okay, suddenly this is the 2.30pm game from Moe. Um, wait, this game's on at 11pm because it's coming across from Perth, so it's 11 o'clock on the East Coast. But this one's only on pay TV, so you can't get this one. You're trying to follow this score, but you can't stream it on the website because it's not related to free-to-air TV. And, and the confusion of there wasn't just the simplicity of you know you can watch every game it's on same bat time same bat channel exactly so that's kind of the issue that they have but then it is interesting how many people have put it up next to the IPL and said well they don't need to have gimmicks in the IPL because they have the same amount of games it goes for a long time but people tune in and watch it because the cricket's good and it follows the basic rules of cricket and it's recognizable as cricket and it doesn't need flashy extras because the quality of the game is excellent. Yeah, and all the flashy nonsense around the IPL doesn't involve the sort of 22 yards in, in the middle of, of the ground. And mm. They don't have that identity issue, I suppose, that I flagged before. And we saw Mumbai Indians uh, take out that comp for the fifth time now, I think I'm right in saying, Jeff, uh, beating yep. Delhi uh, in the decider last Tuesday, just after we recorded our episode. So, again, uh, that formidable side, they go back-to-back. Uh, I must admit, uh, you know, watching that final, it was a fairly dreary affair in the end because Mumbai had had the whole thing under control from the outset. Well, perhaps at least their next Netflix documentary will be a bit more upbeat than the one they did where they were <laughs> sort of fairly ordinary and finished mid-table. But, yeah, Rohit Sharma, is he's kind of the, the quiet achiever of Indian cricket. We were speaking about him recently in, in terms of... in relation to Shane Watson and the way that those two players uh, engendered so much frustration in supporters because of their test batting when without really being recognised for the, the quality of their, their white ball cricket. And so, yeah, it's quite interesting that, you know, the great Indian captain Virat Kohli continues to lead a side that never really features mm. in IPL finals and uh, quiet old Rohit Sharma is just there notching up win after win. Well, let's jump from India over to South Africa where the England men's team have arrived uh, for their six white ball internationals starting uh, next week. So, or well, the week after next, I should say. So they run through from the end of November to the start of December. Um, so they've arrived in Cape Town on their, their chartered jet meeting their COVID conditions and and so forth. For a couple of days there last week, Jeff, though, it it did look like the tour uh, was in some doubt. And this follows on from the conversation you were having on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, when we chatted to Lungani Zama a couple of weeks ago from South Africa, it seemed like there'd been a 
some sort of peace had been reached in that there's this body called the Members Council, which is, you know, the, the representatives of the various uh, provincial administrations. And there was a new interim board that had been appointed to replace the um, suspect board who had finally bowed to pressure to step down. In the time since then, the Members' Council have refused to agree to the appointment of the interim board <laughs> who was supposed to take over and start running the game. Basically, the, the suggestion is that there are members of uh, the Members' Council who have been involved with dodgy dealings that are likely to be exposed once a new interim board takes over right. and so they don't want them to get into power. Um, and so that that standoff is, is ongoing and it's involving the sports minister again who's threatening to come in and dissolve the entire... Um, apparatus and, and appoint the interim board himself so it's it's a ongoing situation and if it, there is still the possibility that it could uh, send that England tour off the rails and if it does it'll cost them some 70 million rand I think that they can ill afford to lose. I always love when you hear about sportsmen as intervening uh, in different cricket boards activities like South Africa or Sri Lanka I, is it still the case that the sports minister signs off on the team sheet for the Sri Lanka maybe that's one of those old urban <laughs> myths but certainly the influence is is, uh, is considerable compared to Australia where the sports minister doesn't even sit in cabinet it's usually sort of a, an outer at a federal level it's, a, it's an outer ministry spot which you know in the pecking order of the 30 or so ministers it might be batting at number 28 or 29 and put it this way it isn't telling Cricket Australia what to do really uh, when you when you boil it well, down Well it is important the sports ministry position in the run up to elections when you want to make sure that you pork barrel the <laughs> shit out of some marginal electorate so then it's very very important. Yes well when you have other portfolios and you have sport on top of that happy days but when you're just this you know it used to be a, a, a pretty junior portfolio you certainly weren't exerting that, that kind of power you're talking about there in South Africa. On the field Joss Butler did the pre to a press conference and I mean this is a pretty consistent theme now Jeff the England guys who've been in bubble since oh, end of May and have barely been out of it mm. but when you consider the, the lead up to the July test matches and and so on a very strong theme coming out of these senior England players saying this is a lot harder than you than you perhaps appreciate being in bubble after mm. bubble after bubble uh, and our mental health is needs to be considered and he's not criticizing the ECB or anyone for that matter he, he thinks it's been well handled to the extent they can. But I suppose with England, because they were the first movers on the bubbles and they've been in so many of them already and they're about to go into uh, a number of other bubbles but, but between now and their next home summer due to the overseas tours they're playing, they are the example the rest of the world needs to be watching carefully how much wear and tear uh, this takes on players above the shoulders. So Butler will have been in bubbles more than any other player for England by the end of 2020. So, yeah, there's this sort of a sense of anxiety, not only for being um, away from... Their families but being in that close environment with your colleagues you know, every minute of every day and how suffocating that can be. I think we've been seeing some of the effects of it even in the WBBL I mean they've only been in that situation for a few weeks but particularly with players who actually live in Sydney so their home is you know maybe 20 minutes away they could yeah. they could hop in the car and be there but they can't they can't leave and the the fact that you know, every time you go out of your room and go to get a meal, there's a couple of hundred people there who you can't get away from. Human psychology is a is a pretty fragile instrument a lot of the time. And, and so not being able to do something, not having the option to do something can be a really powerfully damaging thing. If you, if you choose to spend a couple of days holed up in your house, not doing anything, you know, playing video games or whatever, you feel fine about that but 
as soon as there's a compulsion, as soon as you're being told you're not allowed to leave your house, you have to stay there, you'd start to feel suffocated and, and restricted and then extrapolate that to you can't leave this hotel, you know, you can't go mm. into another person's room in this hotel. Mm. You Doing it for months and months and months on end, it is going to mess with people's heads in a, in a serious way and the kind of idea that oh, they can just back it up and back it up is completely unsustainable. Yeah, and I should say that Butler made the point that he, he's really grateful for all the cricket they've been able to play. It's not as though they're being petulant. He's just kind of more making an observation as a senior player that it needs to be uh, front and centre. And it's an important series for England too. I mean, remember that they are building towards, well, they want to be dual world champions. Every team wants to win the, the World Cup 12 months from now, don't get me wrong. But there's a lot a lot there for England. They have the chance to do something really special this time next year in India and they're, they're building up uh, towards that. They won't be playing in Pakistan in early 2021 though Jeff uh, George DeBell uh, had this story on Crick Info last night that, and, and this was foreshadowed a few weeks ago really wasn't it that due to the big bash coupled with England's existing tours squeezing in a trip to Pakistan would have meant like an England C team at, at, you know wouldn't have been the first or the second 11 and there was also some issues with ground availability so instead they've pushed it back to roughly October November 2021 which is still a good thing I mean the fact that they're now pretty much in the saddle to go to Pakistan is only can only be a good thing for world cricket but yeah it might have just been a little bit ambitious getting over there this January and it's probably again you know reducing another bubble quarantine situation yeah, yeah. by one it, it, unless there's widespread vaccine availability at some time in the next year which is possible but certainly not any kind of guarantee I think we'll see teams minimising their trips to what are the most essential which means the most lucrative trips so you know of course England will do anything to come to Australia for an Ashes series, mm. but that doesn't mean that they'll go to the same lengths and the same efforts to to go for shorter tours elsewhere where there's you know less less cash involved. To be frank, right, Jeff. Let's shift gears before our break this week and play a little bit of Nerd the Pledge. It's the game we play with people on our Patreon page. Uh, they bless their hearts, support the show. By sending us a number of dollars and cents or pounds and pence or euros and euro cents, whatever the currency. But that number, that specific uh, three numerals with a decimal in it, relates to cricket in some way. And we have to divine the truth of what that relevance is. We will have two Nerd Pledge numbers on this show today. The first of our numbers comes from Dominic Chapman. The number is six. $6.73 or maybe £6.73 uh, given that Dominic says he was born and bred in Northamptonshire, grew up watching cricket from the early 70s. His number is from that era and one word as a clue is stairs. <laughs> uh, not the kind where you look at someone but the kind where you climb up or down to get to a level below or above you. Yeah, I was pleased to get this one uh, stone dead as soon as I saw the, the secondary clue of stairs. I thought this must relate to David Steele. We've talked about David Steele in passing, Jeff, uh, a few times in the last month or two, but we haven't really 
told the story. I thought this would be a good opportunity to do that now that we have Dominic's number in. Of course, being one of Northamptonshire's favourite sons, uh, and he made this remarkable entry to international cricket as a greying 33-year-old. Not just greying, he had grey hair at age 33 in 1975 when the Australians were over, not only for the World Cup, but for Ashes Test matches. And Australia pump England in the first test at Edgbaston by an innings and plenty, and the expectation is that they're going to roll through England and make mincemeat of them. But in order to counter that, Tony Gregg as the England captain brought in from nowhere David Steele. So... Just to be clear, this is the the Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson ashes, right? When when that pairs together, that, that's right. So the two of them are formidable. Uh, that you know, obviously, just made it to the World Cup final earlier in the summer, and you know that they've they've charged through uh, England in that first Test match in Birmingham, as I mentioned before. So on the way to that second Test at Lords, Tony Gregg plucks a bloke out. As I say, he's thirty three years of age, averages thirty one at the time after twelve years. I mean, there was nothing that stood out about David Steele to suggest he would make it at the international level. But it was a gut call from the captain, Greg, and it really did really did pay off for them. Uh, they, they didn't lose another test in the series. They lost the series 1-0, but they, they largely look back on the contribution made by Steele as, as the reason for that. So just to go through it, the stairs comment has to do with his first innings. At, at Lords, as we know, it famously at Lords, you go through the pavilion after coming down the stairs. Well, Steele kept going. He went into the basement and ended up uh, in the toilets <laughs> down on the bottom level there before he finally made it out to bat. He was nearly timed out. He would have been the first player ever timed out in a test match and it would have been on his debut but in the end he, he got there uh, just in the nick of time and copped a sledge from Jeff Thompson saying who have we got here Groucho Marx referring to his to his hair and so on and how grey he was but anyway he made a half century on debut uh, 45 in the second innings then 73 and 92 at Leeds and then 39 and 66 at the Oval and due to the way that he played against Lily and Thompson hooking them uh, playing conservatively but solidly off the front foot still being able to score meant that he just won the adulation of the England cricketing public I suppose his appearance played a part in that as well but he just wouldn't he just wouldn't bow to these Australian quicks so he was so popular that at the end of all of this the fact that England lost to the Ashes remember they lost 1-0 but the British public voted David Steele to be the sports personality of the year. He was the first cricketer to win that publicly voted on award since 1956 when Jim Laker won it. So for 19 years, no cricketer had won it. And some bloke that's been called up from the Shires to face Lillian Thompson and gets through that interrogation, he wins that award. A bit of an everyday hero, cult hero, of course. He was described by the son as the, the bank clerk that went to war, which is a bit of his, his calling card. He was the Wisdom Cricketer of the Year in, in 1976, kept his spot in the test side, made a century against the West Indies, who, again, were equally formidable, I suppose, with their pace attack uh, in that series. So he made 100 against them at, at Trent Bridge and ended up finishing his test career with 673 runs, which is the number, at 42. One century, five fifties. And the other number we could have had for Nerd Pledge, if he wanted, would have been 17-5-6. And that relates to Steele because in his benefit year with Northamptonshire, he struck a deal with a local butcher saying that I want one lamb chopped for every run I score this season. And he went on to have a massive year and made 1,756 runs, which meant that local butcher mm-hmm. gave him 1,756 lamb chops. But it wasn't that. It was 6-7-3, and that's the runs he made in Test cricket. 
did all the lamb chops get delivered at once or, or was it a, <laughs> a piece by piece thing yeah I, I don't know that level of detail but I, um, I can find it out he released a book a couple of years ago I think he was interviewed on, on Test Match Special so I might go back and see whether that was asked of him that's all I want to know about tell me more about the chops <laughs> <laughs> tell me about the glands um, <laughs> thank you Dominic Chapman our second number Comes in from Dara O'Donovan, uh, a.k.a. big dog of the Quokkas cricket team in Melbourne, who I've locked horns with many times ah. over the journey. They, uh, they wear maroon and they play in a wonderful spirit. $1.62 is the Dara O'Donovan number. Now, I have a feeling, Adam, that you have been cooking up something extensive on this, so I'm just going to suggest a couple of more conventional options, one of which is that is that 162 is the score that Manus made um, at the Adelaide Oval last year while Warner was mm. showing off with the triple hundred <laughs> at the other end. And that was that was quite a significant one given, you know, Manus had made his, his hundred at Brisbane and then backed it up a week later and was saying, here I am, the next big thing in Australian cricket. Uh, it was also the highest test score of Andrew Simons that he made in the Sydney Test of 2008 oh, against yes. India, which was famous for many reasons and uh, sometimes gets forgotten that that's when Simon's made his best Test score. And um, it was also when umpire Steve Buckner made one of his uh, <laughs> more infamous decisions because I think he gave Simon's not out on about 20, caught behind when he'd absolutely smashed it. Nonetheless, 162 was was what Simon's made in India. <laughs> I was going to add I that. I think you're going to go deeper than well, that. Well, I was just going to say that I'm glad you remembered the caught behind that wasn't. Rarely have you seen mm. a player smash a ball quite like that and, and be given out. It was late in the day on, on day one. I was sitting up in the Brewongle stand and, yeah, it was quite the response afterwards, but, yeah, went on to make that massive unbeaten <laughs> score the next day. Oh, look, I just thought this would be a good chance to bust out another one of my one-test wonder faves. So we've been doing that a bit on Storytime recently. Indeed, it prompted a message from Alex Brown uh, on the DMs uh, saying that we had a bit of a call to arms, saying what we should call the segment where I pluck out an obscure one-test wonder. He suggests that each week we play the segment out to The One and Only by Chesney Hawks, he says here it was a proper one-hit wonder cheese fest, so we'll give that a bit of a bell here. That's a good option. I think that's. Uh, we'll, we'll see if you've got any other um, recommendations for what we might call the segment next week. Possibly, I will add though that you're not you're not always about one test players. You're you're about like just really obscure, yeah, you know, 1880s or 1930s or, or so on test cricketers who we've never heard of, yeah. who may have only played. That's not necessarily that it has to be one, but they just have to be you know some sort of dusty old bastard that, that nobody's exhumed from the archives for years. Yeah, I think that's right. If they've played two or three test matches or or they have just have a weird story, I'm, I'm into it. And uh, I found one of the, perhaps the best we've had so far was, was, uh, was, nope. was I think it is. I, I mean, we, we've had a couple of crackers on story time, but 162, the 162nd test cricketer for England uh, was a bloke by the name of Douglas Carr. Now, I knew nothing of Douglas Carr and I was thrilled to learn his story, so I'll tell you about it as well. He didn't play first-class cricket until the age of 37 he had not played Wait, a single what? game of first-class cricket till the age of 37. That's when he was signed by Kent. And the reason he was signed by Kent was that the previous year playing club cricket, so in 1908, he learnt the googly. And that was all the rage at the time. And because he had this googly, he got picked up by Kent 
and, and away he went. So the summer of 1909, he's essentially starting his professional career. And granted, he was an amateur. He went to Oxford. He had opportunities. I mean, he played for Oxford. But as far as when I say first class to be, what I'm really saying is county championship to boo. And he goes on to take a seven for against Oxford, his, his alma mater, and picks up 42 wickets in the first six games of the season. So this old boy gets a run and starts absolutely dominating. And thus the call begins. Pick him for England. Pick him for England. Pick him for England. They're struggling. They're losing 2-1 to Australia in the Ashes. And they pick him for England for the final test. It's, it's, it's do or die uh, for the home side at the Oval. They need to win in order to, to split the difference with Australia, the touring Australians. And he gets a debut. He becomes the only man to make his England debut in the same year that he's made his first-class debut, doing it all at age 37 as well. He takes seven for 282 in his one test match, including figures of 5-146 in the first innings after bowling the first over of, of the test match. Unfortunately, he doesn't go on to bowl Australia out twice. It's a draw and uh, Monty Noble's team uh, retain the ashes and the opener, Warren Barsley, um, scores twin tons to, to make sure of that. It's also Victor Trumper's final test match in England. He makes 73 in the first innings but um, yeah Douglas Carr one test wonder doesn't get picked ever again ends up taking 95 wickets in that crazy debut season gets himself in the Wisden 5 in the Almanac in, in 1910 and he keeps going he plays again through 1910 to 1914 before his career at age 41 I should add is eventually uh, brought to an end courtesy of World War One. Uh, but He'll always have that one test match at the Oval uh, where he picked up seven wickets in that ridiculous summer of 1909 when he was on debut. It's very good. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that, uh, which is definitely the answer that Dara Donovan <laughs> was thinking of. Douglas Carr. So he fits into our old spinners category and he fits into our yes. you know, dusty old weirdos that, that you've dug up um, that that we've never heard of before. So he's a he's a double threat in every way. I love that you could just learn to bowl a googly and suddenly you were like a test-level bowler, <laughs> like just any Well, it gives hope to us, doesn't it? I mean, I'm 36 now. I mean, the idea that I could learn how to bowl a googly in club cricket and play for Australia next year, I mean, it's, a, it's an enticing yeah. dream. I don't think it's going to happen. Don't, don't rule it out. Don't rule it out. Look, that's, uh, that's Nerd Pledge. Dara O'Donovan, thank you. And Dominic Chapman, thank you. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, very easy. Go to patreon.com slash the final word. You will find us there. You can sign up, set us a number, and it will come up on the show in due course, either here or on the longer meander we have on Storytime on the weekend where we go so much more in depth. <laughs> we have a full hour to do it. Jeff, time for a break. When we come back, we will be talking about the WBBL, and then we'll say happy birthday to Sachin. Lockdown is back across the UK, which means a lot of people are back to experiencing isolation and loneliness, being cut off from people they care about and love and being cut off from just normal day-to-day contact that helps keep us all on an even keel. And it's also meant that the Lord's Taverners charity programs for vulnerable kids have had to stop in the main because people can't get together in order to 
let those programs go ahead. So it's a double blow in terms of not being able to get people together for the programs and also not being able to get people together to raise funds for a charity that does excellent work with vulnerable and disadvantaged people. Yeah, we've been really proud of the work we've been able to do with Lord's Taverners this year, who have been obviously a leading, brilliant leading sports charity in the UK now for, for, for 70 years. So they, uh, they have do so much good for the community, especially inside the cricketing community. And at the moment, it's all about combating isolation and loneliness in the short term, which they've been doing all year, but also making sure that uh, young people with disability who do experience more feelings of loneliness have something to look forward to when, when this is all over. The programs are all about opening up new opportunities for disadvantaged and disabled participants to meet new friends, to engage socially and develop a wide range of personal skills. And as you say, Jeff, with all these programs coming to a halt at the moment, it couldn't be a more important time as we make our way to Christmas to try and find a, a way to support the taverners where we can it's pretty clear the equation they've sent me uh, during the week for a price of a coffee a month so say three quid if you can chip in three quid per month to the taverners that'll make sure a child can attend a program throughout the year it's all there at lordstaverners.org but that's the ask here if if you can afford to chip in what is essentially the cost of a, a cup of coffee per month that will do a lot of good for some of the most vulnerable members of our community we'll be talking about it more between now and christmas and as most people would know, that run up to Christmas is a time when isolation and loneliness can bite even harder for those people experiencing it. So there's a world of people going through that uh, difficulty and of that experience at the moment and the Lord's Taverners are trying to do a little bit to, to soften that and to reach out to people who need it. So if you can give them your support, lordstaverners.org is the place to go. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's The Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, Jeff, in a couple of weeks from now, the Women's Big Bash League will be all over. It's, uh, it's, it's gone in a flash. They've played 11 games each, uh, the eight teams with the Stars on top and on the Renegades, uh, their crosstown rivals on the bottom. You've been uh, at games today calling a couple, as you mentioned, off the top, but you've been very busy. There were eight games over the weekend as well. There are another round of games on Wednesday, so there's a lot to sort of take in. But to begin, let, let's start in Melbourne, and we'll go through the teams and how they're shaping up. Uh, Jeff, the Stars, they're flying. Uh, they're top of the ladder. Lanning, uh, Dupria, Siva, we mentioned it last week, the ball as well. I mean, for a side that has struggled throughout uh, the duration of this competition, the addition of Trent Woodhill as coach as well, they're going very nicely. It's interesting with the Stars. I suppose pretty much every team across the board has a couple of trump cards at the top of the order, but they haven't been consistently reliable, whereas with the Stars they have been. Lanning's made runs just about every innings. Uh, Villani has chipped in with you know reasonable scores, not huge runs, but something to support her. And then Mignon Dupree is having a, an absolutely remarkable season with the bat. She's... She's got a power game going. She's hitting sixes, um, but she's she's just crisp and, and timing it beautifully. And Nat Siva hasn't had to do a whole lot with the bat. She's been more valuable with the ball. She's been taking a stack of wickets for them and bowled in a super over the other day. And, and that was the interesting part was that, you know, after their first three games were washed out, they were zooming a long unbeaten streak. And the one team they lost to was the Renegades, <laughs> who've been bloody awful this year. But... It was a, a remarkable kind of game with the Renegades managed to pull off a big late flurry to tie a match, chasing a big score, 156, I think it was. 
pushed it into a super over and won the super over. So it, it, it was, they needed every little ounce of everything to go their way. But the Stars just bounced back from that immediately and won their next match and, and looked untroubled by it. So it was, a, it was a good loss if you can have one of those to, because it didn't throw them off course. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Nat Siver. She went viral on the weekend for an unbelievable left-handed catch. She took it backward point, which is always good when those clips go around the world and people get a sense of how uh, brilliant this competition is. Uh, the Renegades, Jeff, uh, while the Stars have been going up the ladder, the, the Renegades have been going down the snake. Yeah, they, they just don't have enough batting at the moment. Um, they've got, you know, they've they've had a terrible run with injuries. So Maitland Brown, they're one of their key all-rounders, is out injured. Georgia Wareham, their leg spinner, who also ended up being pretty much their best batter through the first half of the season. She's out. Leah Tahu, who missed most of the season up until now, she's only played the previous couple of games and, and so those things haven't been going their way but just a couple of nice moments in the last couple of games where Courtney Webb and Josie Dooley have started batting really well in the middle order um, and Molly Strano went past 100 wickets in the WBBL. She's the first player ever to get to triple figures in that comp so she's on 101 and bowling nicely and, and fielding really well and kind of having a good season in a team that's really battling. And, and then there's this weird thing where, where Rosemary Mayer, the New Zealand quick who opened the bowling for New Zealand uh, in their recent series against Australia, has played for both the Stars and the Renegades this season <laughs> uh, because they've got this pool of unsigned players in the village who can be top-up players. So she, Rosemary Mayer came in to play a game for the Stars at the start of the season, which ended up being a washout and she didn't play. Then she played half a dozen games for the Renegades and then she got called back into the Stars team for their game the other day and took a couple of wickets in the last over to secure them a win when it looked like they might be going to lose to Perth. So it's been such a weird season, but things like that are happening. Speaking of weird, it just strikes me as perplexing that the Sydney Sixers, with all their international talent, are languishing. They're sixth on the ladder. They've lost their last five on the bounce. And the Thunder are still there. They're rivals in third position, but they've lost four of their last five as well. But let's start with the Sixers. I mean, what's going on there, Jeff? It's really hard to get a read on. Um, they just they haven't looked right while batting. There's been a, a kind of sluggishness to the way they go about things. Elisa Healy's doing her best but hasn't been making big scores. She's been making, you know, fast 20s and 30s but but not uh, only gone past 50 once. Right. Elise Perry's really struggling to go up the gears this season and, and, and looks tired out and it's one of these things that makes me think that maybe the hub is just getting to players and dragging them down because too much is falling on Marazan Cap and, and Dano Vanekirk, the South African pair, with the bat when they're really supposed to be there more for their bowling. And then Ash Gardner's had this concussion a couple of games ago, which means that she's sitting out at the moment. That's her seventh concussion in her career. Mm. Um, which And it was quite innocuous. She did it while fielding. She didn't hit her head. She dived to save a ball and just jarred herself when she hit the ground a bit and ended up being subbed out of the game. And, and so... All of that's meant that 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 kind of vulnerable lower part of the sixes, you know, where those players we talk about like Angela Reeks and Jody Hicks are, are usually not even being asked to bat, suddenly they're being pulled into the game, but they're being pulled into games that have already been that have already gone. So it, the sixes, it's just weird. They just don't look right. There's 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 something amiss there that I think we'll probably find out about later. 
Yeah, they're only a game off second in, in, in sixth spot due to the, the, the way that the table looks at the moment, but they're a fair way back on net run rate as well. Maybe it actually relates to an extent to what we, what we said in the first half of the show. I mean, Josh Butler was only an hour away from his family when he was in, in that bubble at the AGS Bowl, given you know his family will live in Somerset. But you can imagine how frustrating it must be for those Sixers players when their families are, you know, you can almost call out to them in the crowd, but they have mm. no opportunity to spend time with them. When you consider that, people in the community in Sydney are able to get around but the WBBL bubble that's not available to them it's a it's a difficult spot for them to be in so maybe being a touring team or being a team on the road uh, puts you in a, in a yeah. better position yeah I, I think there might be something to that just psychologically if you're mm. away from home you know you're away away from home because you know the, the Thunder have been pretty listless as well although right. they did snap their their losing run at the game I was at tonight, they beat the Renegades easily, but that's not necessarily a, a huge feat. But the one big plus for the Sydney Thunder is Heather Knight still just flying. She she looks so good at the moment. She's timing the ball so well. And and Tammy Beaumont, the other England player, has been really battling opening. She just hasn't been able to get up above a strike rate of 100 until tonight. And she finally came out with a, a different approach and, and scored really quickly from the outset tonight so I think there's upside for the Thunder but I'm not sure where it's coming from for the Sixers. And sort of highlighting how quickly this competition can change the Brisbane Heat the last time we talked Jeff was seventh now they're second with only the Melbourne Stars ahead of them uh, they've found their groove at last. Yeah it's interesting was watching the table just today so there were three games today and the team's just pinballed around the table depending on the results from each match um, a lot of the spots are being separated by net run rate but Brisbane I'm starting to like I, I think maybe they took a while to get used to life after Mooney but Georgia mm. Redmayne's been making runs at the top in her last few hits Grace Harris has been giving a lot with the ball and in the field you know direct hit run outs a lot of energy pumping them up and then Laura Kimmins had it absolute shocker of a start to the season she couldn't make a run but her last couple of hits she's she's just started going at the bowling ferociously and made 40 odd off 17 balls uh, the other day and then made a, a fast 25 tonight including a genuine Maxwell style shot a ridiculous shot where she she went down on a knee to try to play a reverse sweep and then got bowled a beamer basically uh, which was at her head by the time she was kneeling down and she managed to play what I would call a reverse periscope through deep third but fine of the keeper off the face of the bat while ducking out of the way for four. It was completely ridiculous. And, yeah, so they've got a bit of juice back and they're starting to look decent. Jeff, Perth are, are circling. They're dangerous. They're in fourth position. As we know, they've got the big guns. But they're missing Sophie Devine at the moment. Yeah, she hurt her back last weekend um, while bowling and is missing this these midweek games, the Tuesday-Wednesday games. So whether she's back for the final weekend is yet to be seen. Uh, hopefully, yes. But they were chasing a big total against the Sixers tonight and Mooney nearly got them there on her own but, but couldn't quite do it in the end. That was the, the game where Rosemary Mayer took a, a couple of... Wickets for the Stars. Did I say the Sixers? They were playing the Stars. There are so many games. <laughs> it's very hard to keep track of at this point. The interesting thing for me with the Scorchers is that Chloe Paparo has started making a few runs. She's one of those mystery players who, you know, how some of the teams have that player or two who's been there the whole time, even mm. though they never seem to actually do anything much. She made a score of 33 the other day on the weekend. And at that point, that was a score that took her past 300 career runs in six seasons. So she made over 10% of her career runs in one hit. 
but she started to look quite good since then. She they they put her up to uh, to first drop and and then had her open the batting when Devine missed out and she's been playing a lot of reverse sweeps and, and using the pace and, and angling the ball around and, and looking more confident. So if I mean she's a player who's dominated locally in in cricket in WA and who's who's got a good record for Western Australia. So if she can finally put it together in the Big Bash, it'll be a big plus for them. Adelaide Strikers are in fifth position, having won five and lost five. Would it be fair to say they're relying on too few to do too much again? They're pretty much relying on Laura Wolfart, right. who's batting beautifully most of the time. But and and Katie Mack, the secret life of Katie Mack, has made some runs. Um, but you know, Patchy, she's had a couple of good knocks amongst some pretty ordinary ones. Talia McGrath is is in cement boots at the top of the order, just can't get going, and so. It's pretty much all on Wolvart. Um, Stefani Taylor is is helping out here and there, but not making dominant scores. And then they've got Amanda Wellington batting six, and Madeline Penner batting seven, who's who barely made a run for anybody before this season. Mm. So uh, they don't have a whole team. They've got a good bowling attack, but they just they're not a functional eleven, I reckon. So you know, Penner did make a fast fifty against the Hurricanes, but the Hurricanes are, are shocking. But Penner also just before that innings did the Jody Hicks double of a golden duck followed by a diamond duck. So you know that gives you a sense of how her season's been going. Uh, Jeff, to finish, you better tell us the story of the Hurricanes. They knock off the Sixers and then they go and get bowled out for double digits twice in a row. Is there anything more Hobart than that? Uh, nothing at all. But they, so they did put a couple of wins together, chasing, and that was really because Rachel Priest came off. So she's the wicketkeeper who came down from the Thunder, and she's towards the end of her career. You'd say she's she's a blaster from the crease. She's she's not quick between the wickets, and usually she's a sort of player who's out for you know twelve off eight balls, something like that. She'll hit a couple of boundaries early and then go. She put together some big scores. She made eighty three not out, then forty two, then ninety two not out. And the 83 was the one where they botched it at the end and should have had a win and, and somehow managed to stuff it up. But then she made runs in a couple of subsequent wins. And the game against the Sixers was outstanding. Big run chase, 92 not out from her, smoked them all around the showgrounds um, with Hayley Matthews riding shotgun. And they looked great, but it was all reliant on that one partnership, basically. And if that one partnership doesn't win them games, they they get bowled out for 82 or 77 like they did the last couple of days. Nicely recaps there, Jeff. So we've got three games to go, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. Jeff, what are we looking for here? Uh, Where are the games being played? And what are the contests which are going to determine who ends up in the final four? Uh, Mostly Hurstville and Drummoyne on the weekend. Uh, And in terms of who can finish where, well, the Stars are away on top. They're five points clear. But after that, anyone can still make it, even the Renegades who are bottom. So you've got three teams on 12 points, then the Strikers on 11 points, Sixers on 10, Hurricanes on 8, Renegades on 6. This will have changed by the time you hear this because it, it might be later on Wednesday and some games will have been played. But... As I speak at the moment, if the Renegades won all of their games and, say, Brisbane lost all of their upcoming games, then the Renegades could still make the four. They won't, but they could. Right, and to keep on top of that, as we work our way to the weekend, just follow Jeff, who's calling all of that for ABC. And, Jeff, before we put a pin in the show today, time for a segment that I love, and I know you love it too. Satchin. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Satchin. Satchin. Take it away, Jeff. Ah, 
yes. Happy birthday, Sachin. Uh, what a time. What a world in which we can do this segment. I would like to thank the people online who've started sending me Sachin content, um, as if I don't check his feed every day myself. But, you know, it's, it's nice to know that people are thinking of me, one of whom was Big Jeff, who I swear is not an alt burner account of mine. <laughs> who, who, your old M-I-R-C username. It's <laughs> my Big um, Jeff 6969. Yes. I'm, I'm a Southern Republican <laughs> trying to pretend to be someone in Philadelphia. Uh, Big Jeff sent me a message to say that Sachin is going into some strange new anniversary content areas. Um, and indeed... <laughs> Indeed, Sachin is. I, I think the only way I can explain this is if we hear from the man himself. Exactly seven years ago, on this very day, I was presented this beautiful steel drums by the West Indian Cricket Board, uh, the entire team, and my dear friend Brian Lara. To me, this represents uh, love and respect that you've had for me, and I reciprocate that. Thank you so very much for this special gift. Uh, I remember when Brian Lara had come home, he had played this and it sounded amazing. Uh, let's see if I can play a bit. I know it's not gonna sound like that, but this is my tribute to all of you. Thank you for everything that you've done for me. That's it. Thank you. Ah, uh, Sachin. I, I love that he says uh, it was seven years ago on this day. You're like, yes, that is how anniversaries work. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, Big Jeff was asking how many tabs does he have in the spreadsheet to tabulate the, the different styles of anniversaries. You know, it is, it is 13 years since you looked at me in the doorway of the Continental Hotel in Beirut and you said... You would love me forever. That was that was that was beautiful, Sachin. Thank you. And yeah, his accompanying message that he will always be grateful for such a wonderful gift and thank them for their love and respect. This is what we're branching out into uh, at the moment. I, I love the idea that for someone so gifted and had such deft touch with bat in hand, he sounds just like a primary school kid banging the drums there. It sounded like you know, on, on a xylophone or something. Not a xylophone. What's it called? The um, uh, what's what's the uh, what's the instrument? The, with the marimba. Uh, maybe, yeah. You know, what is it a xylophone, the instrument where you... I think so. Be? Yeah, it, it, that's yeah. what it sounded like through through the headphones there. The glockenspiel, maybe, a bit of, bit of glock and roll. It, it sounded to me like the um, like the music they'll play on the PA in the, the lobby of a hotel in Bali, where a lot of Australians will go, you know, pop a bit of that on loop and, ah, yes, <laughs> the mysteries of the sensuous East. And we're like, oh, yeah, fucking <laughs> eh? <hey>. Yeah. <laughs> Give <laughs> us a couple of bintangs. Yeah, get that bintang. Tank single it on. Let's bash up yeah. some locals. <laughs> let's let's crash some mopeds into the side of a local laundromat. <laughs> Do you have travel insurance? Nah. Um, Australia. <laughs> Go to Bali. Celebrate Australia Day in Bali. <laughs> 
yeah, look, the other thing that I like is just Sachin's just filming so many videos of him just sitting on his couch talking about stuff. So that was one, the steel drum video. There was also one discussing the, the women's IPL matches, which was presented by Apollo Tyres. Uh, very sad that he's moved on from MRF, you know, broken up. I wonder if he did one of those memes where he was like, yeah, no longer best no friends longer. with MRF. <laughs> best friend is now Apollo Tyres. If you're listening to this and you can knock that up, I'd be immensely grateful. <laughs> Oh, please. I'm sure Tim Gilkinson will be onto that in in just a second. Anybody, please, all of you, uh, thanks to Abby Sim as well who sent us through the uh, the final word bingo card that, that was composed during our live show the other day. So in terms of actual birthdays on that tab of Sachin's spreadsheet, uh, it's the usual run of Indian cricketers. Yusuf Patan got one, which was interesting because last time we spoke, Virat Kohli, who's getting into the birthday tweet game, mm. had, had sent – a birthday tweet to Irfan Patan, the brother of Yusuf, before Sachin. Sachin hadn't sent one at the time of last recording. I'd like to note that Sachin did correct that. Um, he, he did get one in eventually. And then he made sure he got Yusuf Patan in before Virat did. So, so that's going on. Uh, Prithvi Shaw got one pretty early in his career to get a Sachin tweet, but there you go. VVS Laxman got one. Of course, you have to as one of the, the great quartet or quintet. Brett Lee was one of the rare overseas players to, to get a happy birthday. I don't know if any wishes for Tony Abbott were included in that, but Brett Lee got a gig. And then in a meeting of worlds, a melding of universes, Virat Kohli himself, the aspiring birthday wisher, was granted a happy birthday by the master in, in just a subtle act of one-upmanship. This is how it's done, champion. This is how you wish someone birth happy birthday. How old is Virat now, Jeffrey? He's just turned 32. Yeah, okay. So plenty of time left yet for Virat to do as you've instructed him to do, which is to end up making more mm. international centuries than, than Sachin, which would be the ult- ultimate yeah. in terms of one-upmanship. It would. And then the non-cricketing birthdays, which Sachin likes to slip in a couple, uh, Vijenda Singh, who describes himself as a boxer, actor and policeman. Mm, very good. And also the very famous uh, IPL team owner, Shah Rukh Khan, was wished happy birthday in Hindi, Sachin said, from the bottom of my heart, but he very cleverly used a particular phrasing that was also the title of a hit song by Shah Rukh Khan in the 80s. That is the kind of skill that Sachin brings to the happy birthday game. That's what you've got to learn, Virat, if you want to contend with the master, if you want to say happy birthday, Sachin. Nice place to leave it this week, Jeff. Beautifully done. In closing, I should note that we have our social media accounts now. We have Instagram and Facebook. We were obviously pretty late on the ball with that, given we made more than 250 <laughs> episodes of The Final Word. But here we are. Um, and given Facebook's been around for 50 years. <laughs> Final Word Cricket on Instagram. Final Word Cricket on Facebook. We'll put those links uh, into the show Num- notes number one, Number one non-neo-Nazi content on Facebook. Yes, that's right. I have been using- Please like, subscribe and share. <laughs> I have been using the stories a little bit like the kids do. So if you want to see what we're up to, that's the place to do it. Obviously, we'll be back with story time on Saturday. That's now a staple of the show. Harsha Bogley, his interview with Daniel and I from Calling the Shots, where he talked us through the history of cricket on the television in India. And it's a more complicated story than I, than I thought it would be. There's, there's a more texture to it and there's a, 
it's not simply a case of it having been around forever, anything but. So stick around on Saturday for some harsher burglar. We always enjoy that. We make the show in conjunction with Bad Producer Productions. Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards run the show there. DC, Dave Collins is our loyal and patient week-to-week editor. DC does an amazing job putting all the parts together. A lot of false starts, a lot of hiccups along the way, but he's there to make us look good, Jeff. I think we're going to have to find a way to distinguish this Harsha Bogle interview from the other different Harsha Bogle interview as well. I'll have to work out some sort of naming convention for that. But yes, it's it's DC who puts all of that together. Um, and we couldn't do it without the people listening. We could do it without the people listening, but there wouldn't be a lot of point. So thank you for listening. And, and for those of you supporting on Patreon, thanks especially to you for helping us keep making this show. Right, that's it for us today. This has been The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. We'll talk to you on the weekend. I had to go about it.